Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to the Fantasy Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your imaginary host, Terrence Taylor, that whispered voice outside your window, inviting you to step out and fly away with me. Fantasy Magazine is edited by Christy Ant and Arlie Sorg. Our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. In this episode, listen to The Failing Name by Eugen Bacon and Seb Dubinsky. Copyright 2021. Narrated by Paul Bamer. Eugen Bacon is African-Australian, a computer scientist mentally re-engineered into creative writing. Her work has, one, been shortlisted, longlisted, or commended in a great many national and international awards. Her novella Ivory Story was shortlisted in the 2020 British Science Fiction Association BSFA Awards. Her recent works include Danged Black Thing and Mage of Fools, an Afrofuturistic dystopian novel coming out in 2022. Her website is eugenbacon, E-U-G-E-N-B-A-C-O-N.com, and on Twitter at eugenbacon. Seb Dubinsky is a bilingual French dystopian writer and poet. He is the author, among others, of the Babylonian trilogy, The Song of Synth, White City, Absinthe, and The Invisible. Missing Signal, published by Meerkat Press, won the Bronze Forward Reviews Award in the Best Science Fiction Novel category in 2018. He is also an established writer in France. He lives in Denmark with his family and teaches literature, history, and culture in the French department of Aarhus University. So sit back and settle in. We've got a fantasy for you. The Failing Name by Eugene Bacon and Seb Dobinsky. The oval fruit, uneven on all sides even when it's ripe, is not just for eating. Spaces in the dust roads filled with reddish-brown wind are what she sees in her lost childhood. Jolaine wants to tell you to tell anyone who will listen, of hiding in the leaves of a mango tree, witnessing what could have been the onset of an assault. The tree shook with the young boy's shudder, the earth hard on his face, crumbs claying in his hair. As the tree sighed with the boy's cry, Jolaine yelled out, Arrête! Stop! and hurled a mango at the man. The mango hit, smash, into the head at which it was aimed. The man zipped back his combat pants, all camouflage, his malintent towards the boy extinguished. He was a scruffy white man with a mop of sun-bleached hair. 
As the man scuttled away, Jolaine threw another green mango that missed. She had little time to wonder if he was a delinquent, one of the UN soldiers strutting around Kinshasa in that year of 2002, only this one gone rogue. She poised and leapt down to the trembling boy. Head tucked into his arms, his coffee-colored body curled into itself, he whimpered back her words. Arrêtez, s'il vous plaît. His whole body said, please. She touched his shoulder. Viens, je suis un ami. Laisse-moi, he cried. Leave me, leave. Je suis un ami, she said again, softly. He took forever to uncurl, but finally looked up to confirm she was a friend. He blinked at her as if with new sight, and, slowly, her words sank into his mind. Come, friend, friend. He was more shook than hurt. The sky was so clear when she left with the boy. He gave her his hand, moist and clingy. The cry dragged in his mouth as they took to the banks of the river. There, she watched for years and years, decades, the leap of tilapia and a pile of forgotten things until he calmed himself. She touched him, just so, fingers on his nape, and felt the buzz, or tingle. She didn't know whether it was the blood moon or something about the boy, or was it an inherent power inside her soul? She saw the pale blue light of a silent sorcery, perhaps a gift from the boy. His eyes, liquid tar, lit and mirrored each fish's dance. His snuffling nestled into a ditty of flame lilies on the roof of his mouth. A crimson bloom of amaryllis bulbs pulled his feet to a waltz, and they wrapped fingers and became children again. Dusk fell, and it started raining, nothing serious or intense, just a light tease that washed the wind, dripped a few leaves, and opened the smell of the soil. Mon Dieu, she said. Was that when he gave her a lock of his curls? She can't remember. What she remembers is kneading a gingerbread boy from the wet soil and willing it to breathe. But it didn't. Mon Dieu, he said, and ran off, his words cartwheeling in the wind. Je m'appelle. What was his name? Alan, Jivan, Rivan, Yavan. At the time he told her it was an unfailing name. She listened to its echo in the night breeze. Such was her joy, she wanted to thunder with laughter. She raced to the river the next day, and the next. But he never showed. Alan, Jivan, Rivlin, Yovan, was gone. And then, Jolaine's mother, 
gave her away. She heard the fighting when it happened. To do what? snapped her father. You have no room for wisdom. Her mother's quiet voice across thin walls. But you have room for foolishness? Marie Toré will give Jolaine a life. But why? Learning the world will expand her soul. In Paris? Inside the darkness of her room, Jolaine saw a flash of pale blue light. She thought of the boy with eyes of liquid tar. She fingered the pouch with his curls, hemmed into her pillow. When the door slammed with her father's rage, Jolaine knew her mother had got her way. Years and years later, she would, now and then, wonder how a mother could refuse her child, abandon her to an aunt a whole continent away. Sometimes Jolaine understood. Sometimes she didn't. At the time, in the naivete of her childhood, she reveled in her instant celebrity. News traveled across extended family, friends, and neighbors that she was going to Paris. People gawped at her like she was carrying an angel. Most kept a good distance, but others neared and touched her, trusting that her good fortune, unable to contain itself, would rub onto them. She could see their thinking. It was a journey of a lifetime, where she would see, perhaps from a distance, the landmarks of a nineteenth-century tower, an iconic cathedral, an Arc de Triomphe that was a national monument, chateaux and galleries, crystalline fountains, pissing water high up into the sky. And weren't there perfumerie on Rue Scribe, Rue Beauchemont, Eau des Champs-Élysées? A thousand notes of grass rose, jasmine grandiflorum, mandarin and patchouli, floating miles and miles out into the street. No one would trouble her in the city of light that flowed with Cremont and its creamy, nutty taste, rosés all pink and sparkling with noses of rhubarb and rose petal. Her unique origins from Kinshasa would attract easy Sue that passers-by on the streets would drop on her lap, and she wouldn't even have to say her name. Her mother put her on a five-hour bus trip and accompanied her from Burumbu in Lukunga district to Njili in Shangu district. At the airport, her mother helped Jolaine check in her plastic tub, tied with cowhide rope, which carried all her belongings— a handful of batiks, rubber shoes, a lot of second-hand clothes and underwear. Have a good time, her mother said like a stranger, before pushing her through the security barrier. But as a beefy guard rifled through Jolaine's carry-bag, finding a toothbrush, some cassava and fried chicken and a change of clothes, her mother had time to yell, Make sure my grandchildren have a brown daddy! Alan... Jivon, Livlon, Yavon. She tries to remember his name as she fashions him under a full moon in her living room. She kneads him from clay with the curls of his hair. She has the right black buttons for his eyes. Is it the lonesomeness of twenty years in a country she still finds foreign? 
Or is it her mother's urging for a brown daddy that has summoned the pale blue light? The light that's always been inside, the one that brings a buzz or a tingle and makes sorcery happen. With the plague outside and nationwide lockdown, all is silent. The whole world is a tomb, streets haunted as a graveyard. She spits on the dough, squeezes drops of her menstrual blood from a tampon. But, like before, nothing happens. It was a midnight plane that flew two days from Njili to Charles de Gaulle with two stopovers. At first, when the plane taxied at speed a long time on the runway in Kinshasa, all the passengers were quiet. So quiet, Jolaine could hear the watching, heartbeats listening to the soundtrack of nothing. She worried for a moment that the wheels would not lift, but they did. She felt the vessel nose towards the moon, and the lights of the world below fell away like shimmering ants until dark clouds buried them. Her tongue dissolved but featureless words found shape inside her fingertips. She drummed on the handrest, keenly aware of the passenger to her left, an elderly man, fully shaved and pink, his voice like concrete, and the one next to him, a green-eyed girl with headphones. Later, a hostess came around with a tray of water. She was a lush redhead with curls that fell untamed from her cap, with a hand she swung the hair to one side, and the flame in it bounced rather than crackled. The clock slowed, and a siren in her head gathered speed, and she couldn't help but wonder what was at stake. Her feet were the first to go. She lost the feel of the floor underneath, no pins or needles pushing inside her skin, and then it was her stomach which often blurted out endorsements, affirming fear, hunger, or love. This time there was no lightness or weight, not even the flutter of wings. Her enthusiasm over Paris was a faraway thing, and the chicken and cassava were long gone. She clutched to her chest, the soft pouch bearing what was left of Alan, Jvon, Rivlon, Yavan. Her little boy. Passengers settled into the long flight, murmurs slipped and trailed to the front, middle and rear, cartwheeled along aisles, rows and galleys, in a new kind of anarchy. A trolley balancing cans of soft drink, Piccolos of wine and cafetiere to the brim claimed the space between no space, but Jolaine shook her head. Who would pay for it? She faced out the window. She fell asleep, and there was Miriam Makeba. It was a brasserie awash with cocktail lights, swollen with legendary patrons encircled by neat-clad waiters, a chime of cutlery and the soft buzz of chit-chat. Look, Lady Smith Black Mombazo seated at the table over there in the ebony and cobalt costumes, and there, the Desira queens in ogre red blouses, sunflower skirts and headgear, bobbing to the sounds of a song called 
Umuntu. Makeba forked a mouthful of her medium-rare ribeye bathed in natural jus. The room quietened as she slipped a morsel of steak into her mouth, then sipped boldo, a glass of rich red wine that was no mistake, just a neat payoff, the draft of a poem. Now, Jolaine was standing in a park, carrying her fantasies but unable to walk, sending out yearnings to a paddling of ducks waddling out of a pond. She woke up to a head swirling with so much hunger she almost collapsed. White circles sprayed into her eyes, grew bigger, and unpacked more circles that deformed into jackfruit, starfruit, papayas along garden steps with tracks to a metropolis. She looked at the menu tucked in the front seat. It promised confit fish in charred onions, caramel glazed beef in coconut curry, lemongrass coriander spring chicken, green pasta with braised beans, and sprinkled with pancetta, taro cake. Jolaine nearly wept. The dryness in her head was filled with a bouquet of sweetness and musk, a final unresolved miasma that refused to restore her, to reconcile her with something big she didn't understand. When the lush redhead pushed a neat tray full of hot crepe in her face, Jolaine started to shake her head. You need to eat. It's a long flight, said the hostess. But I don't have money. Jolaine blurted and growled, It's free! She lies in bed, but is not asleep. She senses the weight in her pillow. He's an invisible weight, only she knows. But the shape of the gingerbread boy is still in her living room, where he refused to connect to her, to unhook the language she breathed into him and come to life. She climbs from the bed, still unable to sleep, steps into the night and scoops him with her fingers from where she left him on the window sill. He's soft and wet. She lays him onto her palm, takes him to her bedroom where, after years of trusting and mistrusting men, she trusts his proximity, rests him in a corner of the night-eyed room. Finally, she can sleep. After all that flying, two stopovers in Brussels and Munich, and nearly nine hours' wait time in total, Jolaine finally landed the second day at 4 p.m. in Charles de Gaulle. Waiting at the baggage carousel, she panicked for a moment that her plastic tub was stolen, but there it was. Who would steal it? She unroped it for a female customs officer to rifle through with gloves. Jolaine fell out of the gates and into the fleshy arms of her auntie Marie Touré, who was a child's height but all bosom, stomach, and bum. Dear one, Marie Touré poked at her ribs. Isn't your mother feeding you? Before Jolaine could answer, Marie Touré swept her outside the airport and Jolaine was finally in a car. It was a Peugeot with peeling paint. 
and it was unclear if it was a dirty lime or teal. Sitting in the battered thing, so grey and stale inside, she thought of old cigarettes and stale butts. The man driving it was full of hair and a beard. He called himself Mamadou. He was Auntie Marie Touré's boyfriend. Travelling is learning, he said, glanced at Jolaine in the back seat. His intense eyes X-rayed her ribs. I'll introduce you to many things. Advice is a stranger, Mamadou, said Marie Touré. Keep your eyes on the road. He laughed, something belly-deep and rolling. That's dope, he said, and turned on the radio. It occurred to Jolaine that it was raining. The sound of car wipers was a giant heartbeat. Droplets hammered the roof, but the radio boomed full blast on a symphony. The baritone's eloquence was lost on the bad signal, and Jolaine thought of a dog's howl, a concert full of wretchedness, beauty, stifled inside a deep, dark well. The music is killing us, Mamadou! He touched the volume control, and Jolaine could have sworn he'd turned up the noise. But she had nothing left. Her whole body gave in to fatigue as the car burped and farted like a sick goat. It jumped down the road, blasted its horn with purpose. Finally, the radio was off. Marie Torre had taken matters into her own hands, and the Peugeot oozed a rumble from its hooded throat. Mamadou drove, blind to signs for slow-down, wet road, or mile-post. Nothing could wheedle the car's tired wheels from lurching around corners as if in a broken camber, but destiny shook it down a final road northeast of the city. It turned into a quiet street, and then another ran down two blocks and powered off outside the Lego apartments of a housing estate in the urban wasteland. Mamadou carried the tub up sixteen flights of stairs to the tiny apartment at Pau-de-la-Chapelle, where Jolaine quickly understood her place in the household. Dear one, said Auntie Marie Torre, collapsing into a sofa, this floor is a village. Take a broom in that cupboard. Let the girl rest, said Mamadou. There are no shortcuts to the top of a palm tree. Tomorrow belongs to the people who are ready for it. Go home, Mamadou. Today you have served your purpose. Mamadou lived in La Goutte d'Or, far away enough for Jolaine. Auntie, why Mamadou? Jolaine once asked. Dear one, we mesh. But mesh or not, Jolaine's stomach dropped each time she heard his key in the lock. She knew the turn of his key into the apartment, push, fumble, and he entered. Same way he took her, and Auntie never noticed. The French housing estate was a colorless block of windowed cubes, blue, red, and green balconies. Each home on any level was toy-sized but pregnant with roar, families, dogs, television. 
Blonde and mauve bicycles dressed in funny bells lined the hallway that was also a garage. Tiny balconies grew potted plants in suburban lawns. Doors like soldiers. You respected their posture, no matter the noise coming from inside. When Jolaine wakes, the sky is a diamond shimmering with a scatter of white light. In the depth of the room's silence is the rise and fall of his breathing. He's curled tight against a corner, cheeks down on the floor. His eyes are closed. He can't reach her. But their history does. She wonders at his unpolished beauty, the symmetry of his face. She listens to his aroma tucked inside the room, nutty, musty. Hints of mud. He's fetal in a bundle, closed fists, twined hips, knees and elbows. His arms and legs hug his chest. She creeps closer to peer at the green being, coiled, naked. Her own chest tugs at his helplessness as he sleeps through her curiosity. It comes as a surprise. And then a shock when his eyes snap open. Black velvet eyes from a place full of darkness hurled into a world too bright. Jolaine went to a school of dirt-poor Parisians who, like her, thrived on mackerel, potatoes, and bread. Sometimes they called her Lubumbashi. It didn't matter that she explained that she was from Kinshasa. Sometimes they called her Pro Bono, Kunta, or coal face. Back from their taunts or Mamadou's groping, she was wrapped in chores. She moved from living room to kitchenette and into the communal laundrette, back out again, clutching a crumpled load to iron and fold. She pressed the steamer and sprayed a hot sizzle over naked cotton on the bench. She grabbed the corners and squared each sheet neat in the hot silence of the empty room. It came and went, the pale light of a silent sorcery, the blood moon in her head, blonde crystal that dappled crimson along the edges of her vision. She saw the shape of a legend, blue magic that wasn't destiny. But in those moments of inherent bloom she metamorphosed into flames, burning that grew from a buzz or tingle an aura or radiance whose curly cues a god of mist in the dead of a night, aching with want, might know. So she made paper boats from tea leaves, watched them sail at an altitude that improvised a prayer of love, sublimity, and freedom, growing bigger than distance, yet lazing by her side at dusk. Her desire for more filled the space between each chore. She shook off the imprint of her dreams, limericks that sailed her into clouds where she prowled the horizon and watched the world below take shape or fall apart. She waited for letters or the ring of a telephone, but her mother never wrote, let alone rang. 
Jolaine scoured pots and pans, scrubbed sheets and floors. She flipped omelets and mackerel with butter on a tiny stove, plated them on gawky bread sold cheap for shape, the yeast's malice in uneven rise. The market's malevolence, too. Blue potatoes, fresh all seasons, no small act of beauty, blessed anyhow. Finally, a note from Kinshasa, so brief it was just a telegram, but it wore her mother's childlike scrawl. Your father is sick. Send money. Marie Torre laughed it off. Welfare isn't loaves and fishes. I live on government keep. Where do I get sous for your mother? It was Mamadou who peeled out sous, pushed them into Jolaine's hand. You are my favorite. Think of me as a honey father. His deep belly laughter as she blinked. She trusted a father's face. Unlike a mother's sharp one, full of edges. A father's face was warm, soft-eyed, and gave courage. Mamadou's was none of that. He wasn't the brown daddy she wanted near her babies, near anyone's babies. She looked at his money. And me? said Auntie. Give me some. The flesh in her arms swung. Jolaine counted a few notes. No. Mamadou pushed back her hand. Generosity will be the death of you. Marie Torre clicked her tongue. What about my generosity? She wagged a finger at Mamadou and his beard. See how she's clever. The grades she gets in that école. Soon she'll go to college and be a professor. Already the girl is feeding a village. Do a good deed and throw it into the sea. Must you announce it? A good deed is something one returns. Are you giving me money or what, Mamadou? Easy, he said, and pulled a wad from his back pocket. He pinched out a third, rolled it, and slipped it in Marie Torre's bosom, right there between her plump breasts. But his intense eyes shimmered on Jolaine's face as she wondered about the generosity her auntie spoke of, perhaps the clothes, loads of them, from the second-hand shop. See, si? I told you, guffawed Marie Torre. We mesh. Jolaine had no idea what Mamadou did for work. He was available all the time, like her, running eternal errands for her aunt. He closed her fist to make sure she kept her money, and the linger of his fingers told her he'd come to collect. He did. He had feelers for precisely when Marie Torre heaved and waddled her way out of the shoebox flat, down all those flights of stairs. Jolaine began sending money home. Often. Mamadou collected. Often. She ran between chores, hurrying north, then south, laundrying, cooking, sweeping, but outwardly she smiled. She played auntie in the big man's arms when auntie was off again, yet inside was the howl of grief, drowning seedlings of hope, hopscotching for weeks and then months 
years moving away. She sent money home, but her father still died. His virus was one of poverty and a broken heart for his far-gone child, donated as a migrant to distant lands. She never got to see, even from a distance, the Tour Saint-Jacques, the Notre-Dame, the Arc de Triomphe de l'Étoile, or any chateau or gallery for that matter. Sometimes she saw fountains in a park. Though they had ruby-throated hummingbirds that reminded her of the motherland, none of those fountains was crystalline or pissing water high up into the sky. The perfumes Mamadou sometimes gifted her were cheap shit from some pharmacy, nowhere near Rue Scribe, Rue Beauchemont, or des Champs-Élysées. Sure, once or thrice, Mamadou cracked open a bottle of bubbles, but Jolaine was lucky to get half a cup between chores, and only at Mamadou's insistence. Auntie gobbled the rest. It didn't matter how many notes of grass rose, jasmine grandiflorum, mandarin, or patchouli floated from the fizz. And Mamadou finally moved on. It broke Auntie. There was nothing for Jolaine but misery in the City of Light. And Lubumbashi, pro bono. They couldn't even get her name. Poetry shimmered into the vastness of Jolaine's lonesomeness. She ran and ran with her chores, verse, in her head in bright patches, until she lost count and collapsed in sleep. He stares at her with those black velvet eyes, but they are half-sighted, fuzzy, waiting for her form to shape. There's turbulence in his blankness, confusion. The room and its tiny bed and cold, hard floor expand between them. The reality is firm. He's here. His crossed eyes wander to track her. She stands waiting. He focuses on her face. As his blurriness falls, his hand reaches out or begs for a drink. But there's no herbed soup or soft red wine. She reaches to touch him, falls back at his sudden movement, a snatching away as from a threat. His eyes begin to loll. His mouth forms and deforms, pulling words like bile from his gut. The yawn of his maw floats and shifts in a cloud, the skin on his face stretching and unstretching, black worms moving inside it. The spasm of his hands reaching and reaching. She presses against a wall, nowhere to go. His face pulls out, a second face, drifting towards her in its foggy form, grimaced in anger or anguish. His words are echoes vibrating the room, even as his double face folds back in and becomes one with itself. His words get clearer with each try. Finally, she makes out what he's saying. Arrêtez! Arrêtez de faire quoi? But he doesn't explain why or what he wants her to stop. Instead, he says, Mon Dieu! She looks at him in bafflement. Je suis un ami, he says. Je suis aussi ton ami. She tries the important question. Comment vous appelez-vous? 
He blinks. Je m'appelle. He blinks as if the words are lost. Comment vous appelez-vous, s'il vous plaît? She begs for his name. S'il vous plaît. He copies her words. Et tu, Alan? Jivin? Rivlin? Yovan? Mon Dieu! He says in his limited speech. She notices his hair, long and slippery, not the tight curls he wore as a boy. And his skin? It's milk white. She offers a hand. Viens. Her words are a whisper, words from a novel she hasn't read. He takes her clutch, climbs to his feet. His rise is wonky. She puts both hands to steal him. He towers above her. His first walk is a totter. Is that her heart's whisper? Or a sigh in her head, a rhythm in his form invites her to dance. But he's yet to walk, her little man all grown. She tries not to see his manhood. It's right there, taut as an oak. If he has thoughts at all, wonky after wonky step as he finds his feet, sex is the furthest thing. He's perfect, imperfect. She's playing goddess. She has created a man in her own image, embossed in her memory. Now that she has him, she wonders what will she do with him. How will he fit in her world? This locked-down world ridden with a plague. And right now she has teaching to do, a virtual class of writing students waiting for her to log on. She did go to college. But she's not yet a professeur. Now she has this one to teach, her man. He's her man. Her lonesomeness across the years has been a curse. But now she looks at him. I look at her, looking at me, eyes into eyes. Hers, inquisitive. Mine? I don't know. Waiting. Probably, if eyes can wait, what do I know at this moment so much, so little? I know this woman made me, that I should probably call her mother, or mama, or maman. What I don't know is why she made me. Perhaps it's a mystery to her, too. I hope not. I hope she has some idea of my role here in her life. Behind her I see a wall, a door. There's often a wall and a door in a beginning. It must be a beginning. I am born, created. I exist in time now, but not her time. At least, not completely. I am the unborn, born. I've seen it happen, but it's my first time. I know much. I know nothing. The memories I have and carry from a past time, a continuous pulse, maybe a heart, a welcoming warmth, 
shapes in the darkness of the friendly void, whispering, sometimes singing, always naming. Some counting. Counting what? I don't know. I don't remember. Some difference now. There are shapes, voices. Sometimes they send a smaller shape. They murmur, you have been called. And that's it. She's called me, this woman. I've no idea how, but I'm here, and that matters. Words come as natural as the wind, yet I've never experienced the wind, or have I? I'm inside with the speech of outside. So difficult now to speak to the woman. Her world is complex. She seems impatient, even as her fingers detail my body. I exist. She knows this. She's not happy. Not frightened. Expectant, maybe, but I am already here. My memories are impossible. I can't define myself except through I, knowing it is and it isn't who I really am. The knowledge is too big, this place, this woman, her world. I look at her. The stare has changed its owner. My reflection is in the black of her eyes. I am there, black on black. I know colors. How? I must learn everything. I am an apprentice. I'm willing. I carry the strength of the sun, the subtlety of the wind, the solidity of water, the comfort of earth. I am a story, a gargoyle sleeping in a corner. I encompass all limits, offer no borders. I am here, between her hands. She created me. I created me. When lightning hits a tree, the tree burns. But what made the lightning? What made the clouds the bolt escaped from? The story has so many beginnings, it has none. There are no promises between the created and the creator, only experiences, pieces that compose something. A start is as good as any. And yet, she began before me, and I before her. I remember, I forget. Each story has a price. It becomes your bones, your flesh, your laughter, your tears. We exchange vows through our held gaze. But is she ready? Is she really ready? For us? She's waiting for me to say something right now. Laisse-moi. I say, sink back to the floor and close my eyes. Laisse-moi, he said, sat and closed his eyes. Leave me. Leave. Jolaine's tears were not disappointment. For the first time in her life she understood rage. In a heartbeat, he was her mother. 
He was Marie Torre. He was Mamadou. He was every urchin that had called her Lubumbashi, pro bono. If she had a bucket and a spade, she would dig and bury him beyond reason. He was everything she dreamt about, and nothing close to its script. He was the sun that was a coal mine, the autumn that was a fog so dark and dirty she couldn't see her mind. She looked at him, naked bum on her floor, knees up, head tucked in his elbows. She understood one thing more. He was unsure of his role, and she had nothing left to teach, not for him, no. She had nothing. She spat on the floor. There'd be no standing ovation. Life had changed, things had moved on, and his story was a pestilent linger worse than the plague of her world. She hadn't marked the spot, but he would go back to the clay, whether he understood the words or not. Spaces in the dust roads filled with reddish-brown wind. She wept for lost childhoods. And when it was over, she hoped there'd be clearer skies. She sees her lost childhood, spaces filled with dust roads. She longs to see the shiny leaves of a tropical tree, wonders why no mango hit ahead to save her. A texture of shadows swirls with bifocals in the city library, blows its mist on now faux-book spines blurred with mermaids and inky typeface. It will be gone by morning, changing minds about justice. Fefi fum, luring everything but text to clouds and oceans, photographing smudges and spreads, Natural history pollution to the moon and back captured on phone. The sky might fall. Her pen is poised to write a story that interrupts itself in lambent colors that don't match as they flicker between moments. If she could hide in poems, she'd scribe no apology or complaint, just a dirge, not a fete, of words that keep going. Alan, Jevon, Rivlon, Yovon is gone. She wants no compassion, half-smiled or whole, just a corridor she can borrow for a reference to feel included for more than a minute and forty seconds more. More. And not in a second-hand shop. Stop. More. More. Welcome back. You've been listening to Paul Bamer narrating The Failing Name by Eugene Bacon and Seb Dubunsky. We hope you enjoyed this offering. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or on the social media venue of your choice. Our editors are Christy Yant and Arlie Sorg. This podcast is copyright 2021 
by Adamant Press. We publish Fantasy Magazine and this podcast for free, but please consider our many subscription options or recurring patronage at fantasy-magazine.com slash support subscribe. Our sponsor this month is John Joseph Adams Books, featuring Questland by Carrie Vaughn. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the audio stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators, Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Please be sure to check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production was by Jim Freund, and our music was composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrence Taylor, and goodbye for now. From all of us at Fantasy Magazine. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.